This episode contains graphic content that may be alarming to some. Listener discretion is advised. My voice is shaking and I'm crying because I thought I had totally let him down. And he said, Goldsberry, when it comes to making decisions, it's like you're up to bat. And if you sit there trying to analyze what the perfect ball is to hit, you're striking out. Just pick something that you think you can hit and knock it out of the fucking park. This is a show inspired by one of my kids who, for them, making mistakes and facing failure when things aren't predictable can be really tough. But life isn't predictable. If you want to be successful at anything, mistakes and failure, they're just required. You've got to fall down if you want to move ahead. And in today's social media world, we're so good at posting our best angles with the best filters. We're not posting the mistakes we make. We're posting our victories. But that's not real life. Being a Grammy-nominated songwriter, producer, and entrepreneur, I get to hang with some of the most influential, bigger-than-life human beings on the planet. And even when making the biggest hit records, few nail it on the first take. I'm going to try and challenge the stigma of fucking up and explore how even the most successful people face personal and professional moments of doubt and hopefully show all of us that our failures, our more fragile moments, are where greatness is born. I'm your host, Billy Mann, and this is Yeah, I Fucked That Up. Today, we're going to talk about two letters, N, O. No can be super painful, but sometimes no is exactly what you need in order for the yes things in your life to appear. And I'm here today to talk to the incredibly talented, super lovely Renee Elise Goldsberry. To her, no represents more than an audition that didn't go her way or the sound of a failed girl group, but no is attached to more profound moments in life. She has played a wide cast of characters in film, television, and on the Broadway stage from Mimi and Rent, Nettie Harris in The Color Purple, Nala in The Lion King, and most recognizably known for her role as Angelica Schuyler in Hamilton, which she won both a Tony and a Grammy Award for her incredible performances. Renee is not an overnight success. She's that longing success. So I'm really excited to speak to Renee about building that long game career and how the balancing act of starting a family and working to achieve your professional dreams are all subject to the magnificently painful two-letter word N-O. Renee Elise Goldsberry, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm like, so I'm Um, very happy. I'm so excited. Oprah said, think like a queen. A queen is not afraid to fail. Do you think that that's true, that a queen isn't afraid to fail? I don't know that anyone isn't afraid to fail. I think that's something that people say. I think, you know, on some level, there's fear of failure because there's consequences in failure. I think the risk-taking is what makes a queen. I feel like to tell children that there is a person that's not afraid, it really isn't helpful. (laughs) And I think it's an illusion. I don't know anybody that doesn't have fear of disappointing people or blowing an opportunity. But I think the idea is, what do you focus on? And is it paralyzing? And with that, some of it is like, in order to be a queen, or let's use it just like our own inner royalty, to be at our best, however we see ourselves, 
do we include failure as a part of that makeup? Or is failure, it's like, well, that's not really part of the royal me. The royal me doesn't make mistakes. Royalty is about how much burden you'll take on. Talk about failure as kind of a broad concept, but I think what failure is in my profession most of the time, it's rejection. It's not even no, it's just silence. <laughs> like it's not even the honor of, I'm going to let you know that we're not letting you in, like some letter you might get from college. We don't get a letter. We just don't ever hear. Mm. But you know, on some level, somebody telling you no, it just uh, acknowledges your existence. It's sort of worse, the like dead oh, silence. Dead silence. Because it's like, well, why? But well, I'll no... find out they said no when I see it on television and someone else is playing it. Like that's kind of what my profession is. I think what needs to be demystified for people is, you know, how to have an opportunity for a job and miss it, how to not hit the note and not be asked back, how to have a miscarriage. How do you do those things? Like you're in a dark tunnel alone. How do you light a dark tunnel? And I think mm -hmm. if you have a tremendous amount of success, it's a larger platform to illuminate the dark tunnels. Mm -hmm. that, to me, that's my personal mission in my life. When you look back, can you remember the first time that you experienced failing? Oh, my gosh. I remember singing. It was a big deal when my cousin Don, when I was a little girl, always had me sing that heat wave song, Always and Forever. Mm -hmm. Always and forever. There was no, you know, Spotify. Right. Um, so what happened if you wanted to hear a song, you either had to wait all night for it to come on or you right. pointed to your cousin and say, Renee, sing the jam for me. And so she used to always have me sing for her all the time. And it made me feel like this is what I do in this family. Right, right. And I remember one time she was with some other girl, some other, you know, black girl. And they were older. They were like teenagers. And I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, my cousin can sing. My cousin can sing. Mm -hmm. Renee, sing, sing for her. So I was like, always and I sang. I sang my little heart out. You know, we were outside on some picnic bench somewhere, maybe in Pittsburgh or something. Right. And then the girl said, that's all right. She all right. She was like, she all right, but my cousin can blow. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just remember, maybe this is the littlest thing ever in anyone else's life, but I interpreted it as a failure because she was so not impressed with the thing that I did that brought my family joy. Why does that hit you so hard? It was just an immediate, like, put me in my place. Like, I think there's a fear always, even for people that have had some tremendous success, of being put in their rightful place. And I honestly believe the world is designed to put people on pedestals so that we can tear them down. So I am always, like, loath to be there. <laughs> Anyway, so that was like, I think the first time that happened, and I tell you for the rest of my life, it was my greatest fear that somebody would ask me to sing. How and long think did about that it. last, the sting of that? I mean, <laughs> I'm better about it, but I would much rather go out and sing for, you know, millions of people or on television than be in an intimate situation and sing for people. I'm much better about it now because I'm like a million years old and this is kind of what I do and it's fine and I do it much easier now. But think about it, as a guitar player... You don't necessarily have to play guitar if you don't have one. Mm. So they can be like, Billy right. can play. Right. Billy, play for us. You don't have to prove it because right. you don't necessarily have a guitar. But as a singer, there's never an excuse. So that's a heavy story because the harshness also of when one of your peers dresses you down. Yes. Is like. Well, she was even, oh. she was a teenager. Like there's nothing in the world cooler than a teenager yeah. to a little girl. 
I want to fast forward a little bit. To get to where you are now, there were a series of trial and errors. Oh, yeah. One of them was your life being in a girl group. When I was, you know, coming up at that time in my 20s, living in Los Angeles, couldn't get arrested, you know, I threw everything at the wall. I would have happily been starring in the line. commercials for like socks? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. So. I would have loved to. I tried. I didn't get <laughs> cast in them. Anything I could get in. I auditioned for groups. Somebody called me and said, I know these guys for MCA. Do you remember MCA yeah. in the day? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're putting a group together and we just need one of the two other girls. And I was like, I got my girl, Villy, from, from you know, Toronto who can come down because she's beautiful and she can uh, sing and right. she can play piano. Side note, I used to sing backup a lot in my 20s on shows. I used to work right. for Ricky. Allie McBeal. Like, yeah. You, Allie McBeal yeah, yeah. was a big thing. I right. I sang for every artist that you could ever know on Ally McBeal. Ricky Minor, I don't know if you know Ricky Minor, is a very good friend of mine. He like, so I used to sing for the Oscars. I used to sing for every award show. I've sang for every major artist as a background singer in my 20s. It was just the way you made money. Yeah, it's the I way you it. paid your rent while you were trying to wait to be discovered. So the closest I ever came to actually having it happen for me at that time was this girl group. The, the group was called, pause, Female. But they already had a song. The song was called Yes, You Can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Find you a good man. But when you do, you got to treat him right. Make sure your love is out of sight now. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And this was clearly written by women. <laughs> Right. I feel like any song from that era would be canceled. Oh, right now. God. Like... <laughs> anyway, but we were all singing. I understand what you're saying. We were like singing it, our faces off. Everyone was beautiful. Everyone, there was one girl <laughs> named Dawn who was like really, really chocolate brown and like a t six feet tall. And she could sing like like a bass. Right. And then Kenna could sing in the rafters. And there's me and Billy. And it, it was it was just like crazy. And they dressed us. They, they took us to like someplace in Melrose or off of like the mm, pier right. and put clothes. And no one had done this. They invited us to like the big artists coming out their record release parties and they'd be like introducing us females here. It was like so exciting. We were on the road. All we had to do was like meet the major A&R executive, but we could all sing. We could all sing. And they and not according to your cousin's friend, but yes. <laughs> we could all sing right. we could blow. Okay. So we blew people away at our auditions. Right. And then we finally had our big A&R audition. And the woman, I can't remember her name, but the woman who was in charge of all of it was a beautiful black woman. And she came in and when she walked into the apartment that they had rented for us, the one of the girls said, oh, you're pregnant. And she wasn't. Right. And the whole thing just went downhill from there and it just ended up not happening. And for some other really crazy reasons and fraud and a bunch of other things, it didn't end up happening. Squatters and houses and a bunch of long, crazy stories that should be on Girls 5 Eva. But the thing that was so crazy is it was just one of a million stories in my life at the time of something that almost happened that didn't. I mean, that was a huge failure. What happened after that? I just kept going. I was honestly glad I got out of it unscathed. It was one of a million things of throwing million things against the wall, which is why I had totally forgotten that I was in it when I was doing Girls 5 Eva. It's the craziest thing. I'm in a television show about a girl group in the 90s, One Hit Wonder, and we're doing all these flashback scenes about what it was like. And I did not remember until we were on Jimmy Fallon promoting the show. And I thought, you know what? I was in a girl group in the 90s, 
And Sarah Bareilles and Busy Phillips and Paula Pell and Jimmy Fallon all looked at me and like, what? <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? You didn't think to mention this the entire time we were shooting the show? I had totally forgotten. Not because it wasn't a significant moment in my life when I was in a girl group that didn't make it. It's because of how many things I did in my 20s that didn't make it. <laughs> Were there any moments for you along the way that really felt pivotal, maybe a failure or a potential for failure where you learned something about life and how to navigate it? Well, I want to say one small story. There's a man named Carl Anderson who was a fantastic singer. He also like starred as Judas on Broadway. But I had gotten into Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera when I was in college, which is why I got my equity card before I got out of school, which was a really big deal for me. And Carl Anderson was playing Judas, and I was in the ensemble in Jesus Christ Superstar. And when we were doing the show, producers came to see the show because they were going to make a big tour of it. And he said to me, because, and I'm saying this, it's important because he's a, he was a big wig and he promised me some little girl this. He was like, Goldsberry, if this tour happens, you got a job when you got out of school. And I was like, oh my God, because that means everything. Because, you know, no one thinks they're getting out of music theater college, no matter what school it is, with a job. And in actuality, when I graduated from Carnegie Mellon, two people kind of came to my aid. One was Billy Porter, because he had, you know, he, was, he had no Tony yet, but he was already the mayor of New York City. There was a show going to Broadway called Paper Moon, and there was a part for it, understudying Chandra Wilson, who now is a big star in Grey's Anatomy. She had this lead part in the show, and they needed an understudy, and Billy got me an audition for it. And Carl Anderson had these producers, he, he knew when I was graduating, give me a part in the ensemble of the national tour of Jesus Christ Superstar. And I was graduating with two possibilities of two jobs. And I was freaking out. And I was so upset because I had two choices of what to do. And I didn't know what to do. And I thought I was going to let somebody down and myself. I was literally days crying. And finally, I built up the courage to call my friend, Carl Anderson, who I felt I owed something to. And I said, I'm not going to take the tour because I'm going to go to New York City and understudy in this. And my voice is shaking and I'm crying because I thought I had totally let him down. Mm. And he said, Goldsberry, in life, when it comes to making decisions, it's like you're up to bat. And there's a pitcher and he's throwing a lot of balls at you. It's not one ball at a time. It's a lot of balls. That's what blessings are. And if you sit there trying to analyze what the perfect ball is to hit, you're going to just be hit by all the balls and you're striking out. He says, pick a ball. It doesn't have to be the perfect ball. Just something that you think you can hit and knock it out of the fucking park. It was just like the most amazing advice in the world to me. I thought he was going to like quantify what my decision was. He was like, it doesn't matter. And, and that's, that's the way to think about choices in your life. Just It's not about what you choose. It's the fact that you choose and how you hit the ball. And I just like loved that. And then he said, I've got another girl that I know that's in the show who's got an empty apartment. I'm going to hook you up in New York City. Like he just is such a blessing. Like the advice and the way to go into New York City was such a gift. I feel like the greatest addiction that you can get is an addiction to making decisions. Yeah. And committing to the decision. Oh, my make. God. I, you, could, you could say that to me 10 times because I need to hear it. By the way, I have said that to so many friends of mine, especially in the creative world. 
the only addiction is being addicted to making decisions. That's so it good. Because I still do get a little paralyzed when I feel like I'm going to make the wrong choice. The failure of making the wrong decision, <laughs> you think is the scary thing, but the true failure is not deciding. Right. The idea, if you don't choose a ball, you will basically yeah. get hit by all the balls. Absolutely. Well, the thing is that, you know, I think that's what's true about most of us that are artists, we're perfectionists. And some perfectionists are better than others. But there are the ones of us that are so afraid of something not being perfect. They won't try, they'll quit, or they will never show. I will jump to talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda because it's one of the things I love so much about him because I'm there are some things that are just so different about us. And what I am, I'm still that little girl, like you said, and you've gotten past the part where her other cousin sang better. She's still there in me. Because I am such a perfectionist, I don't typically want to show my work until it's ready. And that doesn't work. And it's weird to think that somebody that does what I do isn't like, look at me, look at me, look at me. But I really am not a look at me person. I will do everything I possibly can to get you to look at me when I'm on a stage. But in my regular life, don't look at me. I'd rather look at other people. Mm. But what's wonderful about Lynn is that he is a perfectionist. And at every stage of his process until he gets to perfection, he's like, look, you guys, look at me, look at me, look at me. Like, he's such a show and tell, look at me person. That's the thing. Like, if you sit in your wood shop perfecting something and you don't show people, it doesn't bless anybody. It doesn't go anywhere. And it's just something really wonderful for a perfectionist to learn. If you can still strive for perfection, like most people that are look at me, stop. Once they've shown people and they get some positive response, he doesn't do that either. He never stops working. He never stops before it's perfect, but he never decides that wherever stage he's at is not good enough to share. And that is like revolutionary to me. Well, is it part of it is because of the confidence and the security in knowing that creativity is an iterative experience, meaning what you show on Wednesday morning is going to most likely be something more evolved or changed by Wednesday afternoon or Thursday morning. And that interplay of, I did this, look at this, and then taking that feedback and feeling the room in a way also informs an artist of how they are connecting or not connecting. So do you think that it's a dialogue when you work with other artists, when they're sort of testing out whatever they're doing? Or do you think it's more a reporting? That's a good point. Absolutely. When you're talking about just your group of creatives, that's a dialogue. But I'm not talking about just in the, hey, we're working on this creative right. process. I mean, we're talking about like, you know, they, they had an event at the White House that they invited him to. They're like, can you do something, just anything? I think, it, you know, on the birth of our country or whatever, just something, you know, for an event. And, you know, he had done one song he didn't even know if it was going to be a musical yet. He was just trying to maybe do an album. He didn't, wasn't sure what he was going to do. And the first song, Alexander Hamilton, it wasn't even finished. Mm. And this is what he chooses to do in front of President Obama and that crowd of people. But let me tell you who would not have chosen that song. You know, he had this huge hit in the Heights. Like, who would mm -hmm. not pick the Tony Award winning show to perform that would have made them just as happy? Who would believe so much in something that was at such an infant stage? Right. But that audacity requires a willingness to fail. To fail. That exactly. Exactly. All right. So I want to go right there because do you think that their willingness, their bravery, the way that they choose to put it all the way out there, and that you're less open 
creative process is in some way connected to a fear of failing in full view? I wonder, you know, absolutely. I think I'm probably too aware of people's reactions. They probably have too much significance to me. I wonder in taking all this in, which is part of this dialogue that we're having, what is failure? If you defined a fail, I failed at this, what is it? So my brother said this thing. My brother's another like prophet in my life, right? And my older brother, Ryan, he was talking about high school reunions and he goes to all of them. <laughs> How many high schools did he go to? <laughs> he went to one. Is by he like, like a high school like, reunion crasher? At this crasher, point, you know, it's been he... many years. So he goes to like, you know, some people never go. Some people maybe go to their 10 or right. their 25, whatever. Right. He goes to like all of them. It's the craziest thing you learn when you check in on people's lives Every 10 years, you know, he's like 53, 54 now, right? So it's been many, many big reunions. And he's like, you go back at five years or you go back at 10 years and somebody looks like they didn't make it. And somebody looks like they're, they come, they show up at the reunion, like, you know, in a helicopter, Mm. right? They're killing it so Mm. hard. And then you go to 20 and it's the exact opposite. So I personally think when it comes to like failure in people's lives, it's really where you drop the needle on the record. When I think about failures in perspective, having lived longer, they're lessons learned. They're not failures. Like, you know, if if, if I go into my personal life and I think about the failure of not carrying children to term, when I think about like five miscarriages before I had Benjamin, right? Mm -hmm. My my oldest son. What was that like? It feels, you know, like failure, 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 failure. And bigger than a, no, you can't be in my show. No, you didn't win this. No, you're, you know, bigger than that. You know, it feels like I'm failing at the one thing all people do. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Procreate. Like it feels like just a colossal you know, no, it feels like, you know, the word stumble, you know, it doesn't seem to represent how it feels when you feel like I'm not going to be able to do this. And I don't have a reason why there's no diagnosis of why I can't do this. And when you add to it, I'm starring in the color purple, and I'm also on One Life to Live, and all of the work I was doing, you know, during some of the pregnancies and how fast I was moving and then having a miscarriage, like in a second trimester, you start to interpret some of that stuff as, did I fail at this because of what I was doing or how I was doing this? It's just a lot of time in your brain while you're waiting for another shot to think about it. When you have a positive pregnancy test, when your hormone levels are racing and you feel that feeling of the pregnancy hormones, when they start to diminish, that absolutely feels like a rejection, a no. And what you should hear it as is not yet, but you hear it as a colossal, universal no. I have this Tony speech where I speak about trying to do those two things at the same time. You have two dreams. I want to have this career. I feel like I was made to have this career. I thought this was something I was supposed to do. And then I was also playing with baby dolls every day. And I have this mm. amazing husband. And I have this dream to have this wonderful family. So you're, you're working on both of those things. And sometimes it felt like you have to choose one or the other. And you're trying to figure out how to do it. And so you're feeling like I was failing at both of those things. Mm. Because there are jobs I'm trying to take that I have to tell people, look, I'm trying to get pregnant, so, or I might do IVF, so, or, you know, and then there's also the, did this pregnancy not work out because I was working 12 hours a day? Do you know what I mean? Mm. There's a constant question. And then people lovingly would say to me, Renee, why don't you just lay down and put your feet up 
which was said out of love, mm. but I heard it as, you know, kind of an indictment. Like maybe if I had just been laying down with my feet up, I wouldn't have had those other miscarriages. Do you know what I'm saying? Anyway, I, I tell you all that to say that felt like a season of failure. Right. And I have to say one other thing. I just wrote a song based upon this one experience I'm about to tell you. In 2005, I was in Michigan visiting my dad, and I was in church with him. And the reverend got up and he started saying, oh, we have a special guest in the house this morning. And then he started reading this whole long list. She did da-da-da-da and this and da-da and what da da And he just started saying all these awesome things. And I was looking around like, ooh. Looking around the congregation like, who's here? You know, mm -hmm. all excited. And then when he gets to the end of this long list, he's like, Renee Goldsberry, Dr. Goldsberry's daughter is here. Stand up. And I was flabbergasted. I did not recognize myself at all in all of the stuff he was saying to describe who was here. So I stood up and everybody was clapping and all excited. And then I sat back down. And for the rest of the whole, you know, church service, I just was scratching my head. And I thought to myself, this is such a lie. Because in 2005, if you were going to describe me and not talk about the day I lost my second trimester child on my husband's birthday, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? If you don't talk about that, I don't see myself in it. Mm. And I just remember feeling like, how can you tell these people this is who I am and, you know, and not tell them who I really am? That's just always been on my mind, like the idea that our biographies are so unhelpful and not honest. And if you brought, invite me to come on to, you know, whatever talk show, you know, I'm sitting on Kelly and Ryan the other day, right? If you invite whatever talk show you're on, you have a whole list. They do a pre-interview with you and they're waiting for your great stories and then they're going to come and tell you what you're going to talk about. And mm -hmm. it's never the real stuff that I think is most helpful. So I wrote this song called My Biography where I start with just like, you know, introducing new sensation, cryptic darling revelation. Then in the end, I'm like, you know, dig a little bit and you might get dirty because the bones are buried. Mm. And then I just start talking about who the real person is underneath all that and how it's the beauty of the, who the person is. So I feel what you're doing is essential because that's who we really are and, and who we really are is beautiful. And to end the whole, you know, cycle of my road to children, those miscarriages leading to Benjamin and then to Brielle, my daughter, I don't see them as failures anymore. I think in the moment they feel like failures. But when you're further along in your story and you recognize if any of those pregnancies had happened, I would have a different family. I don't know what that family is. But the one I have, I would, would not exist. And the one I have in all of its craziness is perfect. Every one of those failures in your romance, every mm. one of those failures in your profession, every one of those failures in your road to parenthood lead to somewhere mm. that's beautiful if you don't get off the road. It's almost like there's two people. There's Renee, this outward-facing, magnificent list of all these accomplishments. And then there's Renee, the what's really going on in Renee world. I wonder, how were you able to approach work, like going for those jobs while you were doing it? How do you think someone should deal with that? Deal with kind the of balancing. the balancing of yeah. those things? I think you should go for 
everything. But I, I do believe so hard that you need to pray for the resilience and the strength to ask for everything. And I don't think that we should compartmentalize like, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. I'm, you know, because meaning, I don't- I'm Meaning, I'm going to do this personally and then I'm going to do this professionally. Well, I think I'm specifically talking about this lie that we tell young people and we've been telling them for quite some time now, as opposed to what our grandparents were taught and even my parents were taught, you know, people like 70s and above, that you have to wait to have your personal life until you reach some level of success. You know, like this idea mm. that you're supposed to, you know, obviously get out of school, get into whatever your career is, move to this certain place, and then be worthy of, you know, taking on a wife or taking on a husband and having a family because you have some level of traction in your mm. career. And now you can support a family. And, you know, before I get married or before we try to have children and we're living here together, I, I need to have come this far. I think it's a lie. I think it's an absolute lie. And it's counterintuitive to assume that you could add dependence onto a structure that doesn't mm -hmm. seem foundationally sound. When my parents were kids, it was the assumption that you would come together with nothing, but you would believe in the same things and mm -hmm. you would love each other and you would build something together. And I don't think people are told that anymore. Mm -hmm. I think the idea, especially to men, is that you have to have something going on or you're not worthy of somebody else. I suppose the idea that, you know, it's half the rent if y'all both pay it together. Like, and, and the idea that you would have like a marriage or something to support that, I really believe in my own personal life, the idea that women, you know, would wait until you had a certain level of success and then have your children because you're going to be out of the game when you had kids. Mm -hmm. In my personal life, it tells me something totally different. Babies bring blessings. Every time I had a child, something better happened to me. It's almost like God is, you know, waiting for you to have the faith to say, yes, bring me whatever you have for me. And when you do, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, like, I got pregnant with Benjamin when I was upside down in rent. So I, the idea that I needed to be laying down with my feet up was actually a lie because I, I was always most successful in pregnancies when my body was working and doing something. And after I had him, I just worked, 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 worked. And then with my daughter, Brielle, my daughter is adopted. The minute I brought her home and I was like, I'm done. My family's done. Paint the picture. Let's put it up over the fireplace. Mm -hmm. Hallelujah. I felt like I had, had a very successful career already. I mean, I'll do stuff if they call me, but I'm going to raise these kids I prayed for all this time. Five seconds later, they called me and said, will you please come in and do the workshop of Hamilton? And I said no many times to going to the audition because I was like, no, I prayed for this thing and it's here. I'm looking at this. I'm look at, look at my life. Look at my husband and my two little kids. Look at him. Like, we need this. This is the gold ring. We made it. I can't go and do your rap musical. First of all, I didn't think they'd cast me anyway. Thought I was too old. You know, thought I was, there's no way he was going to cast me as a Nicki Minaj type. I mean, I knew the kid was genius, but I thought oh, I'm going to happily be sitting in the audience with my baby. You know, like I was watching in the Heights. I'll be mm -hmm. fine with that, you know. And yeah, I, I listened to the demo of Satisfied and I was like, you know what? I'm about to take my baby up into this audition real quick. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I believe that you have to go for what you want. And the people that are the most successful are the ones that don't let no or the rejection or the pain of it stop them from asking. When I look at my career and how successful I've been in the theater and even in television, and and then when I look at what I really, really have, like the people that know me the most thought I was the best at, which was writing music, and how, how little I've done, like I've done nothing in that territory, and how ironic is that? I think it's because I'm the most insecure 
about asking for what means the most to me. The closer you get to the thing that means the most to you, the less resilient you are about the idea of rejection and the more painful failure or the the threat of it is. And so you don't go as hard at it. Mm. So you actually ironically can look at the end of your life and find tremendous success in the areas that were like, oh, really? Okay. I'll show up and do another animated whatever. Oh, you want to give me a what? Tony? Okay. That's amazing. Mm. Like, I love it. And I'm having the best time. But what prevents you from pursuing as aggressively the thing that means the most it's the fear of failure okay it's the fear of failure it's the fear of failure and a no that is closer to your heart but isn't it a bit like carl anderson's advice that you have to choose a ball yes it absolutely is you have to choose a ball and hit it what stops you from choosing a ball to hit when it comes to the original material side of your life it's so interesting. I, I don't know that I understand it as choosing a ball to hit. I just think it's knowing how to hit it hard. Is there any advice you have for somebody right now who's basically just fallen flat on their face? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, my kids are at sleepaway camp now, and it's been a hard experience for me. <laughs> oh, God, it's so hard. But the beauty of it, you know, being a parent is that you get to see some of the struggles that you have reflected in your children. You know, there's nothing, there's no way, greater way to learn than, than having to teach, <laughs> even when we're teaching things we haven't truly found out. But my son just got the lead in one of the shows at the camp that he's at, which is a really big deal because mm-hmm. it's hard to do that, even though he's a boy and maybe it's a little easier. But <laughs> and, I, I, and the crazy thing is I thought when I heard, you know, because you can't talk to them, oh my God, this is amazing. He must be having the most amazing time. I'm so mm-hmm. proud of him. And when I talked to him, he was going through it. You know, it's the fear of, will I, will I be able to do this by myself? You know, can I, this, it's too low for me. How do I get them to change the part? Will I be able to learn my lines? I think I'm going to give this back. Like the fear that the attack that comes with success is crazy. And I only say that to say, What we haven't talked about here, you know, we talked about like, oh, briefly, oh, she got to be in Hamilton or Lion King or The Color Purple Mm -hmm. or whatever. What we didn't talk about is after the great gift of the job, the attack that comes with the, the feeling I'm not going to be able to pull it off. So what would you say when someone's in that dark place? I'm very, 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 very spiritual. You know, I I speak in Christianese sometimes, we call it. I believe that the devil cannot take your blessings from you, but he can alter your perspective on them. So the very thing that is a gift looks like a curse. I believe that very strongly. I, I learned that when I got to New York City to do The Lion King. I finally, I had auditioned for The Lion King so many times. And when I finally came to New York City to do it, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I was so close to getting fired. I was failing so bad at singing that song. <laughs> I couldn't pull it off. I could not hit, I couldn't figure out why. I could sing it off stage. I could not sing it on stage. I was, I was so stressed out about finally getting moved to New York City to live my dream and being sent home because I was so close to being sent home. It was just so hard that one day I realized, wait a minute, I had to tell myself in my apartment freaking out, I am on Broadway. <laughs> I am starring in The Lion King. I am living in New York City. I think I was, I was about to be thir- I'm about 30 years old. Like I, I thought it was too late. Like, you know, they might send me home tomorrow. But I'm here today. Can there be some joy in this for a minute, Renee? 
it's hard. You have to remind yourself, even when you're blessed, it's even harder sometimes to not let failure suck the joy out of the greatest gift in your life. So my advice to people is to be ambitious and to work hard and be humble. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Be aware of the fact that, you know, there's going to be some challenges and you have to work hard. Mm. But don't let the joy of the gift, the opportunity to try and risk be robbed from you because you are so afraid that you might blow it. My takeaway, just to sort of wrap up, first off, thank you for being open here. And it's not because I think... You are not open in other places. You are open in other places. But contextualizing loss and a feeling of being out of control when you work hard towards something, whether it's a girl group or someone who's auditioning for something, or much more importantly, much deeper, which is how to build a life, build a family, be a mother, be a professional, balance the scales. My mom, who raised me and my siblings, who worked, sometimes worked two jobs, she taught us by just being. My grandfather was very clear. He would say, you know, never say what kind of a man you are. Just be, and the world will know. And I think my takeaway with you as your friend, but also as a fan, is that you just are, and the world knows. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you for being here. So talking to Renee was moving for a lot of reasons today. Listening to her go through the enormous weight of trying to build a career and a family at the same time, knowing that neither one of those things are automatic or assumed, really, it just caught my breath. She revealed this concept that it is not in the order of things that first you do a career and then you have a family or first you have a family and then you have a career that there's no right way to do anything one feeds the other in positive ways and in her case after going through extraordinary struggles with pregnancy going through the extraordinary sense of failure when your body is not cooperating with your heart and they brought their youngest their daughter home she was like, I'm done. And the moment she was done was the moment Hamilton appeared. I think that's how it goes. I think that's how success works. And I think that's why whatever you're going through out there right now, whether it's your personal life or your professional life, don't let one cannibalize the other. And trust that even though you look at the horizon line and you don't see anything on the other side just yet, that the world is round and there will be something there for you. That could mean there's a child on the other side of the horizon. It can mean another business opportunity. It could be another path that you never imagined. And it could be a person that's about to enter your life that is gonna change the course of your life forever. So keep going. Yeah, I Fucked That Up is an Interval Presents original production from Silver Sound. Produced by Reed Adler and Jesse Ash. From Interval Presents, executive producers Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Executive producers from Silver Sound are Corey Choi and Reed Adler. 
Story producer, Jesse Ash. Senior producers, Hunt Beatty and Rebecca Halperin. Sound, edit, design, and mix by Luke Allen. Original music by Killy Idol. Special thanks to Director of Operations, Sarah Yu. Senior Director of Digital Strategy and Business Development, Sheffy Ellensweig. And Director of Marketing, Samara Still. I'm your host, Billy Mann. Make sure to follow Yeah, I Fucked That Up. And listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.